Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I'm superfan Jody, and today we have Eric Lindblade and Jim Hessler. Jim, what do we have going on today? Cousin Eric, superfan Jody, what goes? Today we're coming to you from high in the sky in honor of the 158th anniversary of the opening of the Battle of Gettysburg. We are in the cupola of the Lutheran Theological Seminary, what is known today as the Seminary Ridge Museum on Seminary Ridge. Now from here we have a perfect seat and a clear eye to the opening rounds of the Battle of Gettysburg. So we're going to thump our chests and cover some high ground. Buford, Reynolds, the cupola, the seminary, and the morning of July 1st, as the devils to pay here on this brave installment of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. So, as Cousin Jim said, we are in the cupola of the Lutheran Theological Seminary, and it just so happens that the Seminary Ridge Museum is our sponsor today. And Jim, we are joined by another special guest. Feel free to introduce yourself. (laughs) Yeah, Pete Mealy, uh, Executive Director of Seminary Ridge Museum. Pete, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, so I've been working here at Seminary Ridge Museum, an education center, for the past eight years. I spent the opening moments of uh, the 150th anniversary right here, watching from the cupola as the museum opened. And about a year ago, I took over as executive director, and we're really happy to have you here and talk about this, the one of the most important views in Gettysburg back in 1863 and, of course, today. And we're also joined by a new member of the podcast family. Some of you may have noted we had a little bit of a shakeup in the uh, show opening where normally we would open up with Eric intoning and welcoming visitors to the show. But today we were welcomed by superfan Jody. Jody, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Jim. Well, after about 15 years working in nonprofits, I, like most superfans and everyone else in Gettysburg, found a position here so I could be closer to the history of the battle. So now I spend a lot of time here developing tours and events for groups and organizations. And we should add, in addition to being a friend of the show with her own background in history, uh, Jody will be joining us from time to time as a contributing reporter, and she will bring her own pathological love for the state of Maryland to the show. So look for more Maryland gimmicks as we ease our way into season four. So does that mean we're getting an Old Bay sponsorship now? It, absolutely, right? And we have to sing Maryland, My Maryland at the beginning of every episode. It's going to be great, folks. I'm just going to sing Christmas Tree, My Christmas Tree. I like it. I'll join you on that. Hey, if they didn't leave the union, I'm not singing to them. They tried. <laughs> Did they? <laughs> Did they really? Did they really? So, Jim, I believe you have some very exciting news involving a website that happens to involve products from our beloved show. Well, I do, Cousin Eric, and uh, in lieu of a specific episode sponsor this week, now you know, and I know, that the Battle of Gettysburg podcast superfans are among the finest in the land. They're well-read, they know Gettysburg, and they've been through hard times with us. And they like to dress with style when they hit the battlefield. Now, because listeners have asked for it, 
not because we asked for it, but because they asked for it. Yes, the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.com is now open for all of your podcast swag needs. We've got shirts, many of them themed to our favorite episodes and catchphrases. You know, how often have we been asked, when will there be a Bobo Sickles shirt? We now have a Bobo Sickles shirt at the podcast store. Keep a clear eye with Buford, James the Hammer, Longstreet, Chris, uh, many, many more, including a new line of Jersey-style shirts with the name and number of your favorite general. And of course, more to come. Uh, The store also carries the books we have collectively written. Wait a minute. We write books? Do we ever talk about that on the show? Yeah, we do occasionally. And yes, we have the books in the store. We have mugs, water bottles to stay hydrated when listening, when storming the battlefield, when touring the new Seminary Ridge Museum. Pete, do we allow water bottles in the museum or do they have to leave those outside? Water bottles are fine. Okay. Come on in. As Eric would say, it's a very fluid situation. Well, that was an excellent segue. What I should say is that only Battle of Gettysburg podcast water bottles should be allowed. So if you want to drink your water, you gotta you got to pay to play, folks. There you go. Everything you would expect to find at a high-quality online store. Now, there's a lot to unpack. Just look for our little Circle Star logo with a trademark pending to know you are at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Uh, We do want to thank superfan Michelle from Rome for setting up the store and playing Webmaster. And a sincere thanks to all of our listeners for their continued support. All joking aside, things like the store help us to uh, support the time and effort that it takes to put this show together. The Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.com. One word, The Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.com. Now open to serve all of your podcast merchandise needs. And Eric, with that segue, do we have any social media updates? Just real quick on where people can find us. On Facebook, at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast. On Twitter, at Gettysburg Pod. On Instagram, at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast. And you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you're looking for a quick and easy way to help the show, you can donate to us via PayPal at paypal.me backslash gettysburgpodcast. Or for a recurring monthly donation, you can subscribe to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash Gettysburg Podcast. But enough about all this. I think we have one last thing to promote before we get right into this episode. We do. So uh, another new feature that we're adding is periodic, what we're going to call Beyond Gettysburg Tours, to kind of let people maybe visit sometimes some of the uh, sites that might be peripherally associated with the, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg in the campaign. Dare I say, we might do a Seminary Ridge tour sometime in the, n- the near future. Very, very possible. With, I a, think with our we new partners here. We may know people now. Yeah, yeah. But the one we're going to talk about first is Beyond Gettysburg, Chambersburg, led by historian and friend Tracy Bear. Mark the date. That will be Saturday, July 31st at 10 a.m. Now, Tracy, who has also recorded a two-part Remember Chambersburg episode that will air soon, uh, Tracy is going to lead you on an approximately two-and-a-half-hour walking tour in the historic downtown area. The tour is going to cover the settlement of Chambersburg, John Brown, the Civil War era, three Confederate occupations, the historic 1864 burning of Chambersburg, and much, much, 
much more. $20 per person. You pay Tracy at the event. Parking is available in the Franklin County lot on Hood Street between Lincoln Way West and King Street. So once again, that's the Chambersburg Tour, Saturday, July 31st at 10 a.m. For more information and registration, we do have a Facebook event page set up or contact Tracy Bear at tlbaer61 at gmail.com. tlbaer61 at gmail.com. Remember Chambersburg, Saturday, July 31st, 10 a.m. All right, with that, let's get to what we're here for. What are we here for? We've been doing promos for so long, I forgot what our point was. Yeah, what are we here for? What are we here for? Pete? You want- uh, you know, that, that, it, that's actually very like metaphysical. Right there. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. are we here for? Yeah, what it, is our purpose? Well, Good point. Good point is we're in a religious institution. I was going to what's better that. to have a medical f- metaphysical discussion than the rooftop of this building? And, and so far, we haven't been struck by lightning, so we're doing pretty good. No, lightning only strikes once, hopefully. So August ni- August of 1913, we had the one lightning strike here. But we're we're up here uh, in the cupola of the Lutheran Seminary. The building was constructed as the first permanent home of the Lutheran Seminary here in Gettysburg in 1832. We actually just passed the 190th anniversary of the laying of the cornerstone of this building. And for 30 years, this building was... A school. People were learning in this building. People were living in this building, working in this building, all aimed at becoming uh, Lutheran ministers. And this site was chosen because it was a place of peace and a place that you could shut out the world and focus on your studies. And nobody ever in their wildest dreams thought that what was going to happen here on July 1st, 1863 was going to happen. A couple thoughts there, Pete. Um, we were talking a little bit before the show. You know, we're recording out here on what is a fairly hot and breezy mm-hmm. day. Uh, and you made an interesting comment about why a cupola would have actually existed on a building like this. You know, we military history guys just assume, well, it must have been an observation mm-hmm. point. But that's not why it's here, right? Yeah, it certainly helps with, helped with airflow in the building in the time, certainly before central air conditioning. And we've actually conducted an experiment here where if you open the hatch in the cupola and open the front door of the building, you can feel the air flow up the uh, stairwells on either end of the building. So it's like a chimney uh, helps to create airflow. And uh, that was one of the primary purposes, if not the primary purpose. Also just a beautiful place to come up and focus on studies, focus on uh, religious studies. So uh, it was not originally intended to be used as an observation post. Any stories about those crazy religious students of the 1840s, 1850s, you know, coming up here and maybe having a pint or two, uh, falling I don't off the cupola? No, or I haven't heard anything about that. But yeah, I mean, the there were students in here and, and people were coming up to the, to the cupola even after the battle. Uh, in the 1890s, the building is turned into a dormitory and the attic space right below us was used as a, as a sort of a workout area. There were students that were lifting weights and there was a there was a boxing clinic so yeah did, did they fight other denominations uh that i don't I mean, know does, like the uh, lutheran <laughs> welterweight take on the baptist welterweight and the winner gets the methodist i mean how now that now they're they're primarily focused on flag football every year the seminaries all of the seminaries in the elca get together and have a big flag football game out on the 
the fields to the west, uh, Luther Bowl, and they take home the the, the Luther Cup. Any chance of wrestling here? That's what I was wondering, too. Our first wrestling reference to the show, but instead we have a little Lutheran fisticuffs mm-hmm, to talk yeah. about. Okay. I mean, do I go ahead and just declare myself the Gettysburg World Heavyweight Champion? Let the uh, seminary students line up to take you down? Yeah. Okay. I live right down the road, so right. bring it on. Pete, can we, can we arrange that? Sure. You know, here's our new fundraiser. Watch me get punched in the face repeatedly throughout the day. <laughs> I think there's a few people in town who would pay money for that. Oh, I know there's a lot of people in town <laughs> that would pay money for that. Okay, so where were we? So, um, so go ahead. You any more about the history that you wanted to share with us? Well, yeah, the building from from the 1950s, uh, the, the seminary, it was actually condemned in the 1950s. Uh, couldn't be used as a dormitory anymore, and the seminary board actually votes to knock the building down, and it came pretty darn close to having this building not be here anymore. And there was a, an outcry, uh, of course, in the town amongst battlefield guides, the National Park Service, the Civil War Roundtable, and uh, other avenues were explored. And the Adams County Historical Society ended up moving into this building and was here for about 50 years uh, until 2011. They moved out and a major rehab was done to open this building as Seminary Ridge Museum on July 1st, 2013. And tell us what the building's used for today. Sure. So we have three floors of museum exhibits. Uh, We cover the first day of the battle in depth. We cover the use of this building as a field hospital and then a general hospital for two and a half months after the battle and spend a lot of time talking about Civil War medicine. And then we also look at the history of the seminary and the, the role that religion plays in bringing about the Civil War. And you mentioned it in your intro, but maybe just talk about this again. We're not in the original wartime cupola because something happened here? Sure, yeah. In August of 1913, about a month after the 50th anniversary, the cupola was struck by lightning and burned down to the roof line. We suspect that the flooring that we are standing on it was probably saved because it was tinned at the time as it is now. So probably this flooring is original, but the structure above us uh, was was rebuilt to its original specifications. So even though you might not be standing in the original uh, cupola, you're at the same height and looking out at the same fields that uh, that Buford would have been looking at. And as here's here's the first movie reference. You're standing in the cupola where Sam Elliott stood. Well, I was actually going to segue into that because, you know, the super fans want to know for the record how much of the movie was and was not filmed yeah. immediately here. So if you if you look, the, the close up shots are filmed up here. And uh, if you look up, if you were up here, and you can always come up here, fans and super fans, you look up, there's a little hatch at the top, and you can see that hatch in some of the shots, especially the ones where uh, Sam Elliott and uh, who, the guy who plays Reynolds are yelling at each other. But for the distance shots, uh, it, they were filmed elsewhere, and it, it actually a one of the facades of this building was constructed with a cupola on top as a set. But those close-up shots and, of course, the scene where Buford is writing the letter on June 30th were filmed right here on campus. And, you know, we did our special two-part episode on the Killer Angels in the movie Gettysburg. We had to watch the movie repeatedly. (laughs) 
I'm still recovering from that. Yeah, I mean, not that we haven't already watched the movie collectively, repeatedly, you know, over the last 25 years. But my favorite part is we're, you know, we're in the cupola right now. I'm looking due south, and on the south side of the building, there's actually a scene shot as they're riding between what's now the the seminary building as well as Valentine Hall, and you actually see the exit sign inside lit up. I never knew they had that in the 1860s. So, fun thing, if you're Mm -hmm. looking for that, there it is. Going to poke holes in it. Any uh, any stories about Sam Elliott being a prima donna? You know, kind of tearing this place apart, yeah, Hollywood I, style, I, or I anything? Unfortunately, I don't have any Sam Elliott stories. I wish wish I did. He he hasn't been back. But if anybody knows him, if he's listening, come on back. We would love, love to, to have, have you, you, Sam. Yeah. We would love to have you on the show. Super fan Sam Elliott, come on down or come on up, as the case yeah. might be. We'll have our people contact his people. Speaking of movie scenes. Uh, there's there is a scene. Correct me if I'm wrong. That was also again filmed down below the what is supposed to be the evening of June 30th. Although I swear to God, when I watched that movie, you know, June 28th, June 29th, June 30th, all kind of blur together I think a little they had bit. Like seven nights. Yeah, on June 30th. Exactly. I think. Exactly. You know, Lee was admiring the dawn like six times before the mo- the fighting actually yeah. starts. But as a segue, there's a scene down here correct me if I'm wrong, right. it was actually filmed here yeah. uh, you know, with Sam Elliott down there kind of writing his famous J&O Buford dispatch from the night of the 30th you know, kind of outlining what was um, you know, what was mm-hmm. in front of him and what was going to happen maybe that'd be a good segue then to talk about how much Buford and his cavalry division did or did not use the grounds during the battle itself. Yeah, and I think it's actually interesting that we kind of start on June 30th. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the movie gives you the sense of, oh, it's all July 1st that this has any importance. And I think if we look earlier in the day on June 30th, if we were standing here at you know, mid-afternoon, yeah. what we're going to be seeing all around the seminary campus is a bunch of North Carolina soldiers right. from Johnston Pettigrew. As we look out towards Gettysburg, we would have even seen some of them advance towards the edge of town. Uh, I believe Sarah Broadhead talks that they actually came to the edge of town. Uh, Henry Heath will note in his report that his troops advanced to the suburbs of Gettysburg. You know, so we're we, looking over the suburbs of Gettysburg right now. You know, we don't have enough Sarah Broadhead references on the show. No, so we don't. That was a good one. Maybe our well, second you. one ever. Right? And, and she is intertwined very much with this building. Don't want to get off off topic, but she is... No, uh, you're right on topic, actually. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> oh, okay. All we right, never right. get off topic no, oh, yeah, yeah, let's Never. But no, I mean, she, she comes up here, and a lot of what we know about what's going on during the hospital period is because of Sarah Broadhead's accounts of being in this building and, and carrying men from the basement of the building, the sub-basement, up to the fourth floor uh, when the basement floods on July 5th. All right. How about as we're talking June 30th, the approach of the armies? What would life have been like here at the seminary? You know, what did the students do when they saw these two massive armies eventually approaching Gettysburg? So there are there are about 25 students that are enrolled here at the seminary in the summer of 1863. And believe it or not, July 1st, 2nd and 3rd were supposed to be about the midpoint of the 13 week summer session. And we have a uh, a schedule downstairs on display of what classes were supposed to be held at that time. But classes end sometime around the middle of June, 
as some of the men from the some of the students here end up going and joining Company A of the 26th Emergency Militia. Company A is actually commanded by Frederick Kleinfelter, who is a seminary student. And also around that time, Samuel Schmucker, who is the president and founder of the seminary, is going to flee the area because he receives word that the Confederates are looking to arrest him due to his abolitionist views. And he hightails it to York, leaves his wife and daughter here, as far as we can tell. And so once the principal professor is gone, classes pretty much end. Uh, so there's not much going on in that sense, but there are still people living in the, in the building. And you would think there would have been a bit of an uproar here, even after June 26. As June mm-hmm. yeah, right. passed through, you're going to see the same 26 emergency mm-hmm. regiment we talk about right. actually streaming past <laughs> here, literally, as they go back into the town. So I think that certainly would have caused a stir. I mean, even as Lee's army is to the west, we'll get this great view of the South Mountains right now. You've got people coming from Hagerstown, mm-hmm. Chambersburg. Hey, there's a bunch of Rebs over the yep. mountains. And yeah. now, here they come on June 26th. Yeah, I mean, obviously, tension was high in the area, knowing, knowing that the enemy army was in country. When Schmucker left, so did he give any notice and warning to people? You know, I often talk about that on tours. How many of the prominent men of the town or the area did leave, you know, yeah. to take their valuables with them and basically leaving the women and the children behind? Such nice guys. Yeah, I know. I'm going to take all the valuables. I'm getting out of here. You the, women and children, yeah. fend for yourselves. The founding fathers of Adams County, yeah. right? Yeah, and they're left, the, 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 the wife and, and daughter are left here to care for some wounded soldiers and they're actually also giving out water to the men of the 147th New York as they go by into battle on, on July 1st. But yeah, Schmucker, Schmucker leaves, and we're not even exactly sure when he comes back, but we know that it, he, he writes a letter in November that the house is just a mess because the, the Confederates, they, they can't find him, but they take, take the aggression out on his belongings and his library and papers. Yeah, I often tell that story on tours. Yeah. Uh, but they did something special to his Bible, if yeah, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so his Bible is thrown out into the into the street, and it is actually picked up by a Confederate soldier that passes by. And the, the Confederate soldier writes a little note in it and says, this is the Holy Bible that I picked up out of the mud and put back on the case again. And about seven years later, as Schmucker is nearing the end of his life, probably getting ready to donate his library, he writes a little pencil note that says, pencil note was written by an illiterate, but I trust pious rebel during the sacking of my home and library. And that Bible we have on display right downstairs on the fourth floor. Well, I can uh, argue in Cousin Eric's favor as a son of North Carolina. He is neither pious nor illiterate. No, no. I I would have to think um, if there were crayon marks in the Bible, we know they were from Virginia. (laughs) So, there you go. How about, now I'm looking to the southeast, throwing kind of Eric a bone here. I can see through the tree cover, and again, it's a beautiful day when we're up here. Folks, if you have not been to the Seminary Ridge Museum to get up in the cupola, you need to get up here. And we're going to talk a little bit about a special deal before we get off. But as I'm looking to the southeast through the trees, I think I can kind of make out the top of the roof at the Her Ridge Tavern. Mm-hmm. So, June 30th, we know we're going to have Buford coming in from the south. We'll talk about that a little bit. But Pettigrew. Pettigrew comes in on a little bit of a foraging mission sort of raid on June 30th. When I read about that, I see varying accounts of how far into this area Pettigrew actually got before he turned around and came back. So I'm going to throw that one out here to the group. What do we think? Does Pettigrew get as far as Hare Ridge or is he up here near Seminary Ridge? Discuss. I think most of the accounts I've read from the brigade suggest they are on the ridge. Um, Henry Heath 
discusses it. We have Sarah Broadhead's account that says they're here. So I think it's not just one account. And, and keep in mind, you know, when Pettigrew is here, he's coming in with three of the regiments of his brigade that are here. So this is a pretty decent-sized force moving towards Gettysburg. Now, I think what's interesting is if we look off to the south, you would have had a nice view in 1863 of the approaches of southern Gettysburg. And, of course, very soon, they're going to hear a lot of commotion. Mm-hmm. And one of the favorite accounts I love is they hear, you know, crowds cheering. They hear drums being beaten, which wouldn't shock if that wasn't just townsfolk. Just, hey, we finally got our guys coming in. The women singing the their women patriotic sing, yeah, songs. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and, of course, I think what's interesting is what are the orders that Pettigrew is operating under? Don't bring on general engagement unless you can do so to an advantage. Pettigrew's seeing a force coming from the south, doesn't know what it is, doesn't know what's going on, wisely moves his men back. To what's today McPherson's Ridge. Right. And, you know, in, in the interests of historical accuracy as we look to the south today, obviously modern buildings and tree cover block that view. So sometimes when you got to come to Gettysburg, you got to use your imagination a little bit to kind of recreate that. But a pivotal moment up here on Seminary Ridge. And there are, there are a lot of accounts, especially from the next day, from the July 1st, where they're talking about seeing Reynolds and seeing the core flag of General Reynolds from up here. So... You could you you would have had a nice clear shot down the Emmitsburg Road in 1863, and even sometimes in the winter, I've actually been able to see the Kadori Barn from up here. If it's you have to look kind of lean out a little bit, which I don't recommend for many people, but you yeah, gives you an idea. Yeah, leave folks. that to the professionals, yeah. but you it get, gives you an idea of what you can see. I think if we ask super fans to come up here and test leaning out of the cupola, I bet our fans are so devoted we would find a few listeners willing to do that. Wait, all of a sudden my phone's buzzing. I'm getting a call from, from, our, from, staff, the lawyer? from our staff attorney, you know, Dan we didn't, Sickles. We didn't saying, do the disclaimer at the no, beginning no, of the we episode. Didn't. We'll, we'll, so, we'll yeah, get to that yeah. later. Super fans do not try that at home no, or in no, the cupola. Or in the cupola. So, and I, I think that's very interesting. Now, on June 30th, we have, as Confederate forces pull back to the West, we now have John Buford's men yeah. filing in. And I think what's interesting at this point is as Pettigrew moves from McPherson's Ridge back to Hare's Ridge, these guys follow him. Mm-hmm. Then as he falls back to Belmont Ridge, guess what? They keep falling. So at this point, Pettigrew's thinking, this isn't local militia. Local militia isn't this bold. Yeah. It's got to be troops. It's got to be experienced forces. And I think that's when he starts thinking, this is the Army of the Potomac. As a son of North Carolina, why didn't you say, taint no militia? Because that's what the Tennesseans and Alabamians uh, say, mm-hmm. actually. That's from Archer's Brigade. So. Does it matter? Oh, yes, it does. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely it does. So as the as the story goes, then Buford is going to say to Aaron Jerome, his signal officer, seek out the most prominent point, the prominent points, and look out for campfires, and in the morning look for dust. And there is no more prominent point west of town in 1863 than the cupola of the Lutheran Seminary. Yeah, you know, which is a perfect segue. Now, I know even on the 30th, there's at least one account or one recollection of uh, Devin and Buford reconnoitering from, quote, what is described as a belfry in Gettysburg. And Devin says, quote, I will hold back all the enemy that confronts me tomorrow. And Buford says, no, no, Devin, for they will come a whooping and a booming. And that's sort of his his, advice. Admonishment to Devin on that, which again, Sam Elliott would have read that line, I think, a little more masculinely mm-hmm. than a whooping and a boom in. That sounds like a good t shirt. Another, another shirt for the 
Battle of Gettysburg Now, again, a Belfry in town. I know there's discussion about, you know, over at the courthouse or that sort of thing. Do we have any records or indication here at the seminary that they might have been up here as, as early as the afternoon of the 30th? Yeah, and, and most of what we know about Buford being up here, in fact, all of what we know about Buford being up here comes from Jerome. Yeah. Comes from these, these two letters that Aaron Jerome writes post, post-war. Uh, one of them is to Winfield Scott Hancock, and he's the one that puts Buford up here in the cupola on June 30th and then again on July 1st. Uh, as far as we know, Jerome is going to spend most of his time up here, probably the person that spends the most time up here uh, during you know that whatever it ends up being about a 24-hour period. Yeah, and for anybody who may be wondering, uh, who is Aaron yeah. Jerome? Uh, Lieutenant Jerome, often known as Aaron Brainard Jerome, if I'm saying the name Brainard properly, uh, was originally from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had enlisted in the infantry of May of 1861, commissioned a second lieutenant, and then moved up to first lieutenant by uh, May of 63. But on March 3rd of 1862, if I have this correct, he was assigned to the newly created Signal Corps, in which, you know, he served during these early engagements of the Army of the Potomac. After the Battle of Chancellorsville, Jerome was assigned as signal officer for Buford's Cavalry Division, and thus really had only served with Buford for a few weeks at the beginning of the Battle of Gettysburg. So a couple things I find interesting there. Uh, he is new to his service with Buford, and even though his post-war writings indicated that he had developed, you know, a really healthy devotion for the general, he didn't serve with them for all that long. You know, just kind of interesting to me. And Buford calls... Jerome out in his official report talking about how, how what great service he did during the campaign, and especially during that day. A side point about Jerome, after July 1st, he, he's down at the Little Round Top Signal yeah. Station on the 2nd. He's one of the ones that is watching Longstreet's Corps go around the, the side there. So he, he ends up doing double duty and ends up in all these interesting places. Yeah, which is fascinating. When you look in the ORs for July 2nd, exactly what you talked about, you see these signal reports talking about the fighting in Pitzer's Woods, talking about Longstreet's troops being seen moved to the right, and they are signed A.B. Jerome. Yep. That's right. So he's all over the place. And I think one of the advantages the Union Army is going to have here, not just on July 1st, but later, is they have points of observation mm-hmm. throughout here. You know, often on tours, we'll talk about the signal corps. You know, using the signal flags and such, people say, "Well, did the Confederates have them? They did. They just don't have the ground to yeah. utilize them here." So it would be you would have been really shocked. I think the average student of the battle would have been shocked by the number of signal posts here. Really, how effective they were at relaying communications in the battlefield. And you can see a lot of them from up here. I'm looking over at uh, the cupola of Pennsylvania Hall on the college campus, over at the uh, the courthouse there in the downtown, and then. Oliver Howard is going to set one up on East Cemetery Hill when he arrives, and you can clearly see that, and likely Jerome is communicating with that signal station. Yeah, right, right, absolutely. All right, so we're now kind of ending June 30th, because really the bulk of this episode is going to be on July 1st. So, Pete, do you have anything about what they would have seen as evening begins to set on June 30th? So as, as the darkness rolls in on the evening of June 30th, campfires start to illuminate on the sides of South Mountain, and there are people that are up here in the cupola. Jerome writes about it. Lydia Ziegler and the Ziegler family 
uh, are very important to our story here. There's a family that lives in the building on the first floor as caretakers, and uh, Lydia Ziegler, who's 13 years old, and her brother Hugh write their reminiscences many years after, but Lydia writes about coming up here to the cupola on June 30th and looking out towards the South Mountains and seeing thousands of campfires burning. And to me, when I think about that standing up here, that's the most ominous part, I think, is knowing like that the next day is going to be is going to be something. So that's how we sort of end June 30th. How about uh, bivouacked in and around the seminary? Yeah, the 8th Illinois Cavalry is going to be down in the swale between McPherson and Seminary Ridge. And John Beveridge, who's the commander, the major, writes about this, this really bucolic scene of being down there and the wheat is ripening and the sun is dancing off the mountains. And if it weren't for the horses going by, the bugle sounds, you wouldn't necessarily know that, you know, it's, there's a battle that's, that's imminent. So it's, it's interesting to stand in the middle of the swale and to think about that story and think about what's going on yeah, that I, night. I'm just standing here looking out to the <laughs> West, imagining yeah, thousands yeah, of campfires, yeah. seeing troops in front of us, and then hoping that those Union guys in the South are going to get here quick enough. I was telling Jim or, or before we started the show that um, for the first time up here, in eight years, there must have been a farmer that was doing work out beyond the tree line uh, on McPherson Ridge, and there was a huge cloud of dust that got kicked up, and it was the first time I had seen that. Actually, maybe this is the segue to the first, the cloud of dust that they're seeing, but it's just, you know, you can get a sense of what what it might have looked like. And we should add, in case anybody doesn't know, Buford himself is not bivouacked here that night, as most mm-hmm. true super fans would know. Buford was bivouacked at the Eagle Hotel in town. Now I'm turning here. Can we see the 7-Eleven that stands on the side of the Eagle Hotel from here today? Can we see 7-Eleven? Uh, unfortunately, we cannot. We could see Kenny's, we can see Rite Aid, but no 7-Eleven. Yeah, no 7-Eleven. But we probably would have had a clear line sure. of sight to it in yep. July of 1863. So if Buford's at a 7-Eleven, what Slurpee flavor does he get? What do you think about that one? Something clear. Ooh, okay. All right. <laughs> no more hijinks. Should yeah. we go move on out of the morning like of July 1st? I yeah. know it's not the show. Hijinks and promos. But, Pretty much. That's what right. we do. And historical content. The finest in the land. Yes. Morning of July 1st. Should we go there? Yeah. I think what we would see by this point, by dawn, we've got Confederate forces starting to move. We have Henry Heath's division being led by James Archer's brigade, followed by Joseph Davis's brigade moving down the Chambersburg Pike. And of course, we can see the Chambersburg Pike from mm-hmm. here right now. Of course, keep in mind that while the main Union line of John Buford is in our front, we would have had those vedettes all the way out about two, two and a half miles. Yeah. And I think sometimes th- this is where I, I always hate when I hear people say it was a defense in depth, because it's really not. It's just you have these outer sort of posts to give you early warning, which right. is what, which they is what they're there for. Exactly. It's an alarm system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, Buford will use the terrain that we have west of Gettysburg. As I always like to say, it's the worst mall parking lot in the world. Speed bump after speed bump after speed bump. And of course, Buford and his men will use that too. Basically to the maximum effort on July 1st. 
So what would we say? Maybe about 7 a.m. or so, Archer's Brigade starts to get in view of these videttes. And by that time, we believe Jerome is already up here in the cupola. I mean, he, he writes in one of his published accounts, quote, Early in the morning, I saw from the steeple of the seminary a portion of the rebel cavalry. So again, obviously, he's inaccurate on that. Uh, observing us from the Chambersburg Pike. Upon reporting this, Buford prepared his small force for action, and very soon the enemy moved up and opened with artillery, which is well replied by our own batteries. So I think there's no doubt Jerome is up here the morning of July 1st. Obviously, and especially accentuated by the Killer Angels and the movie Gettysburg and popular culture, what do we think Buford's role is here, not only in the cupola, but in and around the seminary on that morning? We believe that Buford is going to be up here probably as the fighting is starting to break out. He's going to go down, and he's going to be probably somewhere around McPherson Ridge, between McPherson and, and, and the front, depending on what time you're talking about. And then Jerome is going to be left up here looking primarily at this point for Reynolds. And the story goes that Buford is back up here when Reynolds arrives. So a couple couple comments there. I'm going to pick up Jerome for a minute, and then I want to use the terrain that we can see, right? Uh, Jerome basically says... We held them in check fully two hours and were nearly overpowered when in looking about the country, I saw the core flags of General Reynolds of the First Corps. I was still in the seminary steeple, but being the only signal officer with the cavalry, had no one to communicate with, so I sent one of my men to Buford, who came up and looking through my glass, confirmed my report, and remarked, now I can hold the place. Now I can hold now the place. Now I can hold the place. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> All right. couple thoughts there. Yeah. One, now John Gibbon, who was a friend of Buford's, had also written that by the time of the Gettysburg campaign, Buford suffered terribly sure. from rheumatism, such that it was really kind of painful for Buford to do anything but be in the saddle. Do we have concerns that, you know, accounts of this stricken man mm -hmm. coming in and out of this cupola might be at least, I don't want to say, you know, exaggerated? And, and that's something that, that we... I have wondered, we have wondered here is thinking about and, you know, what is the physical demands of climbing up to this cupola? Because we came up on a on a, a stair system. And if you come, you go up the stairs. But it was a ladder, uh, maybe even more than one ladder at that time. So, you know, what what does that toll? What toll does that take? And, you know, just as a counterpoint, adrenaline can be mm. an amazing drug. So even if he is suffering from these debilitating issues you know what as a soldier he's seeing what's happening there's excitement i'm sure his blood's going yep it's amazing what people can sometimes do overcoming pain in moments like that yeah or a little shot of morphine and opium might whoa, have helped too whoa, whoa. Uh, we don't well, want to go there trying to Buford? say buford's on drugs no we don't want to go there we're not just going say no, there kids just say no what do you think jody anything I'm in disbelief. I think you're questioning whether Sam Elliott came up here as Buford. Your superfans are going to be upset. We'll work. We'll smooth that over. We'll smooth over those ruffled feathers. How about now, though, going, to you, going back to the terrain? Now, the first panorama of images from the cupola dates back to 85? 1885, yeah, Tipton photos. So in the Tipton photos, 
obviously the closest we can get to recreating 1863. And those Tipton photos, how far south can you see from the cupola? You can see down to the round tops, about two miles. Yeah, so there shouldn't have been. Yeah. So again, for those who might question the veracity of Jerome's reports, mm-hmm. there shouldn't have been any issues with him being able to see Reynolds coming up several miles away. We would agree on that, wouldn't yeah. we? Yeah, and even the, the account he says of the enemy's cavalry. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd been able to look down the Chambersburg Pike, most likely probably staffers, maybe even archers. Yeah, yeah frankly, sure. is who they probably saw. Right, which, men on horse. Which I think is kind of neat that, you know, we don't often think about that, but that would probably who would have been in front at the time. J- just as an aside, we can see about 10 miles from up here. We can see, you know, it's very faint, but we can see the campus of Mount St. Mary's down in Emmitsburg on a clear day. And with the spyglasses that they're using, you're going to be able to see that pretty clearly. So being able to see a good distance from here is not out of the question. And just as an aside, Buford seems to later marvel over the clear glass of the signal <laughs> officer. You know the account I'm talking about? Right, right. Like, Buford's, like, fascinated by this spyglass technology. So it's kind of, that's kind of cool, too, seeing him awed by, you know, spyglasses. Mm-hmm. Do you think he would have used it during the day, like the Confederates in the camp scene? Yes, exactly, right. That's looking, my favorite looking, part of the movie. Exactly, right, when the guy's strumming the banjo yeah. and somebody else is looking at the telescope did, during did the middle Union of the day. Did Union troops do that, or is that just a Confederate? But we also have the guy, then, the night of July First, I guess it would have been it, it meets headquarters waving the signal flags in pitch true. dark. So yep. we have yeah, that we yeah, have that yeah. going too. So Jody, are we saying the movie may not always be accurate? I think you are, and you're disappointing a lot of people, but that's okay. That's okay. Folks, we love the movie, but and it's you're just bringing a movie. Out the truth. You that's know what? You do. Maybe somebody would just give us a bunch of money and we can remake it. Oh. Remake it right. Yeah. And yeah. maybe put sickles in it? Exactly. Well, and and Custer, Sickles and Okay. Some drama. Yeah. All right. So should we go back to Aaron Jerome? We should. We should. Okay. Of course. All right. So let's start getting into the into the debate a little bit. Going back to Jerome's account, and there's a couple Jerome accounts. Mm-hmm. I'm reading one that I believe was published in 1867. Pete, you had also mentioned earlier a letter that he wrote to Hancock, yep. which is in the Batchelder Papers. Yep. Right. Something we've promoted once or twice on this show. I believe we also did two special episodes on John Batchelder and his papers as well. And I believe we have a new John the Badger Batchelder t-shirt. <laughs> but again, we digress too much. Going back to Jerome, General Reynolds and staff came up on a gallop in advance of their corps when the following communication was made by me. Quote, Reynolds himself will be here in five minutes. His corps is about a mile behind, period, end quote. So it sounds like Jerome is saying Buford has left the cupola because he's sending a report to Buford. Buford returned and watched anxiously my observations made through my signal telescope. An amazing invention, this telescope. When Reynolds came up, seeing Buford in the cupola, he cried out, What's the matter, John? The devil's to pay, said he, Buford. And going down the ladder, Reynolds remarked that he hoped Buford could hold out until his core came up. With characteristic brevity, Buford said, I reckon I can. That's that's the genesis of the story, would we not right. agree? Yeah. The legend. That's the genesis of the legend from Aaron B. Jerome. And does not... Does that not play out the way most people envision it in their heads? I know it's the way I envision it I mean, in my head. Almost every book that's been written on Gettysburg yep. eventually has some version yep. of that. So mm-hmm. we're talking about one of the more important, I think, primary source accounts that relates to the Gettysburg historiography. And yet, some historians doubt that this occurred, mm-hmm. including no less than Coddington. Mm-hmm. Coddington debated that. Uh, Sowers, I think, did, and I'm sure other historians have as well. Why, guys, is there a debate about this story? Let me answer my own question. 
I think the problem starts, one, is from my understanding, you know, I, I, I don't profess to be an expert in the life and times of John Reynolds, but Reynolds' staff officers, for the most part, you know, who would have been with him, Charles Vale, mm-hmm. Stephen Weld, and those guys, did not record that specific meeting is happening. Charles Vale, who was Reynolds' orderly, wrote in 64, when we got into town, we saw that there was considerable excitement, so the, the general rode to the front at once, found General Buford engaged on a ridge in front of the seminary, supporting his batteries. And Stephen Weld also wrote in his diary, when we reached the outskirts of Gettysburg, a man told us the rebels were driving in our pickets, and immediately, Reynolds went into the town on a fast gallop through it, and a mile out to the other side, where he found General Buford in the cavalry engaging with the enemy. And what I think a lot of historians are doing is they're taking those accounts, and and kind of saying, hey, there's no cupola story. Maybe it didn't happen. And he, also, Buford himself doesn't write about it in his in his official report. He doesn't write at all about being up here in the cupola. So we are forced to rely only on one historical actor. And I think as you kind of peek behind the curtain, this is what we as historians do as we analyze sources. Right. Just because Buford doesn't write about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And also in a military report, are you going to include, the, oh, there's the devil to pay? You're not including that in your report. That's not what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Also, the two staff officers for Reynolds, there's no guarantee they're actually with Reynolds at this point. As staff officers, they've got units that are deploying. They're needing to communicate. So it could just be these voices that we think just because they don't write about it, they may not have been around here. Right. So there's, there's that, too, adding another layer of complexity to this story. Dare I say it's a very fluid situation? You know what? I think I'm going to go ahead and say it. It's a very fluid situation here on July 1st. How about the Forrest Gump of Gettysburg, Daniel Skelly? Yeah. Skelly writes, and again, I know I'm going to cheese off some locals, you know, oh my god, you're criticizing Daniel Skelly's account, you know, which we have on file, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing about Skelly is he's one of these guys, he's a kid at the time Mm -hmm. of the battle, but remember, he's an adult when he's writing about it many years later. Skelly's one of those guys who seems to, like, see everyone at some point in time, and Skelly claimed he saw Reynolds. Quote, when I reached the pike, there galloped past a general and his staff, who, upon reaching the top of the ridge, turned into the lane toward the seminary Mm -hmm. building. This, I have always believed, was General Reynolds coming onto the field and going to the seminary, where he had an interview with General Buford, then on the cupola of the seminary, before going out where the battle was then in progress. So, you know, we have Gettysburg's Forrest Gump saying he was was here and he saw that as well. You know, my favorite uh, Skelly story when you drank about 15 Dr. Peppers with <laughs> Oliver Howard and Peach Orchard yeah, on July 1st. exactly, was, right, right. Yeah. Before seeing Lee galloping through town and, you know, just pretty much so. But again, I, you know, I'm not going to mention names. I have friends who get upset if you criticize Skelly. Well, say no more. interesting. He says the turnpike. What do we think the route Reynolds takes is here? Yeah. Would he have gone all the Ooh. way to Chambersburg Street? To me, how does this core get here? They basically cut cross-country by the Kadori farm. Yeah. I, at least me, we know we have accounts of Reynolds on Washington Street. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. We can place them there. To me, it makes no sense to go all the way down to the circle and come up, mm-hmm. basically just move towards yeah. this building. Well, you know, in Skelly's defense, again, he's writing many years later. He does yeah. say, though, I saw 
a general turn in the lane towards the uh, towards the seminary building. I mean, you know, you guys, you guys here at the Seminary Ridge Museum, I'm sure, you know, this is your bread this and butter, is it, exactly, right? So, I mean, exactly. you know, do you guys sort of have an official position on this that you can share with our listeners? Sure, yeah. I mean, the 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 official position is that the meeting takes place somewhere around the seminary, very likely in the cupola. But again, it's you know, like all history, we we can't definitively say that that's where the meeting took place. We we can. I'm pretty definitive on Buford was up here at at some point, multiple times during the during the June 30th and July 1st. But did that famous meeting take? place i'm not sure and you know we have paintings that were done by dale gallon for the museum and it has buford and reynolds outside the front of this building sure. and there's a thought too with this very chaotic situation in its front do you really want buford stuck up here the whole time mm-hmm. especially if the guy's got rheumatism and it's going to take some time to get you know, up and down yeah i mean i think you really don't want him up here that's what you have staff officers yeah. for. that's what you have the signal corps for now could it be that you can easily yell down to him in the ground easily so you know how do these things get morphed how do they get remembered and also we never have reynolds and buford they're gonna be able to tell their story about well this. you know and the other the other thing too is how does Aaron Jerome benefit by saying he was up here with Buford? Because in 1867, or I forget what year he writes the Hancock mm-hmm, letter, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, how does he benefit by saying Buford was up here? Nobody at that time would really care. You know, he's telling he's telling the story. Look, we have no doubt the cupola was used as a signal, signal point by Jerome. Uh, maybe some others. I want to talk about that. But... To me, there's no benefit to Jerome. This is well before Sam Elliott was even conceived. His great-great-grandparents were not even born yet. There's no benefit to Jerome, in my view, to say, I shared space with with Mm -hmm. John Buford. Mm -hmm. To me, that adds a little more credence to the story. And if Buford's up here a number of different times, who's to say this just over time when this happens? He was up here. Well, maybe he wasn't. Mm -hmm. But you just, it wouldn't be the first time we've had folks at this battle that have confused event that they witnessed with their own eyes. Well, you know, and the other thing, too, is the Reynolds staff officers say things like he met with Buford, who was engaged uh, and that sort of thing. You know, Buford is a euphemism for Buford's troops. Mm, I mean, we we mm, do mm. it all the time. You know, Sickles was engaged when we mean Sickles' troops and things like that. So, you know, Buford was engaged on the ridges west of town is a euphemism for the cavalry, and it doesn't necessarily mean that this particular meeting didn't happen. And just kind of spitballing here a little bit if buford was up here when they see the approach probably the first thing he's going to do is all right guys i gotta go maybe right i'm yeah. right i've got to meet with him we're gonna because we know that they will ride out to the front so we've got to factor that in too i don't think he'd wait for reynolds to get here and go all right one second john let me get yeah, down yeah, yeah right, 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 right if right. i see him You're i'm coming, immediately right, going down right. waiting for him yeah. especially if he's stricken with rheumatoid arthritis right, it's going right, to take yeah. him a little while to right, get down right. he's going to start early yeah and you know again there's an indication i've seen at least one account that one of buford's staff officers is sent out to meet reynolds mm-hmm. coming in so again reynolds isn't just coming in here high and blind which probably either. would have also added to a more direct path yeah to get here yes yeah, so. so are you arguing in favor of the story or against it what do you think i think there's elements of the story that are correct I don't know if the exact sequence is correct. I know that sounds like a total cop out. A little bit. Yeah, but I think it's it's one of those things that frankly if you're looking for history that's going to be very definitive, find another Don't film. study ba- don't, don't study Gettysburg. Don't study Gettysburg. <laughs> and and I think a lot of it what I often try to do is when I read these accounts say okay, does it make sense? Does it make sense what they would have seen from here? Does it make sense of the timing? Also, 
does it make sense with sort of what they would do as an officer? Mm, and I sure. go back to that idea. Even if Buford's up here, maybe he sees the flag, but then he immediately goes down. Mm-hmm. So does over time, he was up here when he sees the flag. They have the conversation down around mm-hmm. the seminary. There's yeah. a way to make it both work. And, and I think the reality is some of the major players don't get to leave their account. So we don't, sure, we don't know. Well, we, we never write, get to ask Reynolds, did it happen? We always hear from the guys who survived. Whether it happened or not, I had a dream that we would reenact that conversation today here in the Cupola. One of us will be Reynolds, the other one will be Buford, and we will do the movie version of it, which is, you know, the only version anybody ever ever remembers. We're going to let Superfan Jody be the arbitrator. Eric and I, which one of us should be Buford, which one of us should be Reynolds. Pete will play the role of Aaron Jerome, who is in the movie, by the way, right? There, there is a guy who I presume is supposed to be Jerome in the movie. So one of us oh, will be. This re- is tough. Yeah, this is tough. you don't so have to play Buford. Die, yeah, you don't have to play favorites. Just pick one. Which one of us is more irascible? That one should be Buford. Which one of us dies to a bullet in the head, and the other one dies from pneumonia? <laughs> which one? <laughs> which one of fate. you is going to let me out of the cupola today? That's a better question. <laughs> okay. 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 Actually, are we sure this door is unlocked? <laughs> no. More than one way down. True. <laughs> All right, so Eric, I think you should be Reynolds, and Jim, you should be Buford. All right, fair enough. All right, so everybody, we're going to have an amazing, dramatic rendition of the Buford and Reynolds. Whether it happened or not, we're still going to have it encounter on July 1st. How goes it, John? The devil's to pay. Can you hold? I reckon I can. And see. Cue the music. Okay, we're weeping here up in the cupola right now. We're going to pause for a minute so to, to, to wipe away our tears. Make it the tissues. So, so peaceful. And contemplative, which is what it was intended for. Yeah, so now let's just sort of place ourselves in this spot at this point on July 1st. Buford's men are beginning to withdraw. John Reynolds' men are deploying onto the field. So what would we have been able to see from here at this moment? So. Yeah, after the meeting between Reynolds and Buford, they're going to depart each other's company for the final time, and Reynolds is going to ride back to the Emmitsburg Road somewhere right about where the Kadori Barn is. And he's there, there are accounts of men in the First Corps saying that Reynolds was in the middle of the road, his staff had pulled down fences, and they're going to start moving across the fields towards Seminary Ridge, towards the northwest. And uh, it's going to be Lysander Cutler's brigade in the in the front, followed by the Iron Brigade. And Cutler's brigade is going to go in across the fields just to the west of the seminary into battle on, on McPherson Ridge and engage Joe Davis's brigade. And the Iron Brigade is going to be coming up behind them. And those are the ones that we spend a lot of time here talking about because you can see see it very clearly from here. 2nd Wisconsin, 7th Wisconsin are going to go across, followed by the 19th Indiana and the 24th Michigan. The 6th Wisconsin is going to be held uh, in reserve in the swale between the two ridges for a little bit before Dawes men go uh, towards the railroad cut. But I think it's an account from the Samuel Williams of the 19th Indiana talks about coming right to the back of the seminary and they're going to turn towards the west and march right across the open fields. And I think we should point out, too, from here, in 1863, you would have been yeah. able to see north of the Chambersburg Pike right, and see Cutler's right. men. And just for fairness, we should note, 
Lysander Cutler's men are the first infantry on the field on July yes, 1st. Indeed. Yes, indeed. So we just need to point that out. I think a lot of times, even with the way kind of the park interprets the battle, right, you exactly. go your first it's Iron Brigade, all Iron the way. Brigade centric, right. which I've yeah. been fighting this battle for yeah. years, folks. Yeah. Yeah. But I think just to kind of give you a sense that it's you've got portion of a of Cutler's Brigade going across the pike. You'll have some of his brigade around the McPherson barn, and then of course we'd be able to see the Iron Brigade coming right. in right. right. And right. it's just unfortunate we got some trees, maturer trees that have grown up that you can't see the railroad cut too well. Come back in the winter, though. Or, it's cold, but you can see the railroad cut. Or give us a couple more storms like we had last yeah, week, right. and we'll, yeah. those trees will be gone. So for those who, though, have never been up here in the cupola, we are situated right now, we are looking west toward McPherson's Ridge, and we're really, the cupola is really better situated to look at that action south of the railroad tie, right. right, or south of the Chambersburg Pike would probably be a better way of saying that. So we've probably got the Iron Brigade forming in and around immediately in the ground in front of us mm-hmm. before they went into action and ultimately led to uh, General Reynolds's demise. Yeah, and there would have been, uh, there in 1863, there's a grove of oak trees right behind the building so they're going to get through that and then and then go out towards uh but you'd be able to see all of the action in in herbst woods from up yeah. here and you likely probably would have been able to see the advance of some of archer's men Absolutely. keep in mind yeah. the woods yeah. do not yeah. look yeah. like yep. they did in 1863 right I've, right i've read enough accounts where participants talk about being able to see completely exactly. through the woods and so i think you from here you would have probably been able to see part of Archer's men deploying. I think you would have been able to see, you know, the Union troops plunging into the woods as well. This very chaotic and sort of dramatic moment here, which mm-hmm. I think sometimes that gets forgotten. That you literally have one brigade coming from one side of the woods, another brigade coming from the other. Yeah, they're going to meet in the woods. Absolutely. One of the one of the things that you you don't get a sense of from up here, but you get a sense in the in the middle if you take our walking path is you, you really you discover how high up McPherson Ridge is compared to the swale. And I, I always like standing down there and thinking about, you know, the Iron Brigade going right. over that ridge and knowing what they're going to hit, whereas Archer's Brigade, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. don't know what they're going to mm-hmm. hit. And, you know, I was I was doing a tour last week with our Twitter director, Mike Reinhardt. Oh, great fabulous. Guy. He we is were, a great guy. And we were discussing a little bit about the, the fight of the 151st Pennsylvania yeah. there and where they were positioned. But I think yeah. if you ever walk that area, it's very deceiving terrain-wise. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and really to the south of the woods, and we can kind of see it from here, there's this kind of lip of a ridge right. that will block the views. It'll block the 11th North Carolina from the 151st, but it'll also block the 24th Michigan, the 19th Indiana, mm-hmm. from the rest of Archer's men. So yeah. they're able to kind of sneak right around their flank. Plus, you've got the smoke from the fighting already yeah. going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a perfect situation, a perfect recipe for disaster. For yeah, it is. You know, and so when you look at any battlefield from a distance, obviously we're on a high point right now. We can see literally for miles and miles, but what you lose when you get up onto points like this are those dips in the yep. swales of the countryside. And, you know, whether it's a battlefield in Pennsylvania or a battlefield in Montana, you know, this is true pretty much all over the globe. But that's the kind of thing you you lose, you know, when you view it from a distance like we are today. Really, our purpose today is not so much to do a blow-by-blow of the morning of July 1st, but talking about really what's going on immediately around us. Sure. So, so Pete, as this infantry firefight is now developing to our west and off to our north, what would we immediately be seeing here around the seminary? So, there's a a lot of action taking place here at the seminary as the the Iron Brigade is marching across the field. This building is being 
turned into a field hospital. Yeah. Dr. George New of the 7th Indiana is the medical director of the 1st Corps, and he's going to look at this building and start setting it up as a division field hospital for the men of the 1st Division of the 1st Corps, and it's, it's soon going to start receiving its first patients. Mary Ziegler, the matron of the seminary at one point, has been outside and is pumping uh, water at the well somewhere behind this building uh, for wounded soldiers. And there are students that are coming up here to the cupola that are joining Aaron Jerome and watching the battle unfold. Uh, students from Gettysburg, well, Pennsylvania, now Gettysburg College have come up here. And from what we, from, from a couple of those accounts, a couple of artillery shells from Hers Ridge find their way past the cupola okay. and send the students down and uh, I think it's it said down the walk rather unceremoniously. So it's it's not out of the not out of the woods here. So no John Burns like moments where those angry seminarians pick up their guns and no. come out to fight and defend the turf. No, none of that. None of that. Oh, okay, they, they, right. they still had lives to live for. Yeah. At this point, John yeah, Burns yeah. is yeah. like whatever. Maybe they just thought they would pray their way out of this. I don't know. And, so and I got to actually think from where I'm looking at this. Is this the best place to set up your hospital? You've got Confederate artillery yeah. a mile from yeah. Well, you know, you're, this is an exposed position. Cer- you would think maybe some of the areas behind yeah, us that's what I was going to say. C- more- certainly, the idea of putting something behind the lines doesn't really apply here because you're pretty damn close to yeah. it. And I've always thought that it it has to do with the fact that the infantry is so successful in that initial right. fighting. Yeah. They're thinking yeah. maybe. Maybe this is not going to be right. as as dangerous a place as possible as we as by we that move morning forward. session. Yeah. You've pushed the rebels yeah. back over Willoughby Run, so you're thinking, okay, that might yeah, make yeah, sense. We got it. And we got by it. this yeah. point, you would see. I mean, we can look out towards Harris Ridge and see part of where Joseph Davis's brigade ended up. Mm-hmm. You can see where the remnants of Archer's brigade would have ended up. So they would have clearly seen that. They would have also seen that Confederate gun line, though, sure. on the ridge, which I think that would have concerned me more than anything. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's something you would have seen from necessarily up here. You could have seen it from ground level. Yes. So yeah. I think it's not like it's just hidden guns here. Yeah, and we should point out, too, Jerome is still up here. Now, mm-hmm. there's there's at least one message in the ORs that for a long time had sort of been filed with the July 2nd wrong re- r- reports. And, you know, p- diligent researchers over the years found that and, and kind of dug that out where he is basically saying later general howard over a division of rebels is making a flank movement on our right the line extends over a mile and is advancing skirmishing nothing but cavalry to oppose them so jerome is up here at that time also probably seeing the approach of ewell's corps Mm -hmm. coming in on our right so guys down below might have been thinking hey this is going okay but the man up top might have had a different perspective on things so also around this time, you're going to see the other two divisions of the 1st Corps arrive on the field. John Cleveland Robinson's division is going to show up, and they're actually going to be held in reserve here. Right. And you know, during our Iverson battle mm-hmm. walk and our Iverson episodes, we talked about that. Where would they have been in reserve, do we think, in relation to the seminary building? They're probably out on the on the west side, just beyond our parking lot today, because it's the men of Gabriel Paul's brigade that are going to start building the barricade of rails. And Abner Doubleday, who's commanding the First Corps at this point, recognizes that if the line, if the First Corps line gets pushed off of McPherson Ridge, we have to have some second 
place to make a stand before retreating back through town. So as a, quote, precautionary measure, he is going to order the building of this barricade of rails and stumps, about knee high, two feet high maybe, and that's going to be done by uh, by the men of Paul's division. And one of the soldiers, Abner Small of the 16th Maine, writes about building the barricade and looking back towards the cupola, and he can see the men in the cupola pointing towards the north and and that is oh, probably cool. what you're what you're they're starting to see mules guys show up and, and i've always thought it's very interesting and when i do i do a lot of day one tours and, and we it's talk, the best day it is the best day <laughs> uh, it's one of my three favorites well to me if there wasn't a first day there couldn't be and, a second or it, third uh you've never heard dan sickles talk on that topic now have you according to dan there was no first day until the second well, day see two for me, Sickles on day one is his heroic approach towards Gettysburg, saving, marching to the guns, marching saving to the sound the of the guns okay. on July 1st. But I think what's very interesting, if you look at Doubleday's deployment, it's very uneven mm-hmm. the rest of us. You know, from where we would see, we would see part of Chapman Biddle's brigade here. We would see the Iron Brigade in our front. We would see Roy Stone's yep. boys off here. But yeah. to me, I've always felt the better position is move everybody back here. Get a straight line connected to Robinson, yeah. and I think it's a. And even you get the account of the Iron Brigade in Herbst Woods saying, "Hey, we're kind of hung out to try." Double days yeah. has all the advantages of a readout, so it's this idea if you fall back to this point. But to me, you got a better fallback point mm-hmm. already here and already been identified as well. Well, part of this is a casualty of the death of Reynolds. I right. mean that that rather immediate loss of not only command and control, but sort of that guiding hand, which you know Buford talks about mm-hmm. then in one of the messages later that day. There's nobody, right? There's nobody guiding, yeah. guiding things here. And but that's what happens. And a forgotten aspect of Reynolds' death: a lot of his staff takes the body. Yeah, away. yeah, they're, they're not here. Right, which, right. frankly, sorry, he's dead. But guys, you still have a job. To do. Yeah, and I feel bad for Doubleday because that staff should have immediately gone to Doubleday. Oh yeah, and said, hey, here it is. We're going to Howard, and say, yeah. here's what we know. And, and Doubleday is is just trying to do what he thinks is right. right. He's saying, well, Reynolds right. committed us. We got to stay here. Right. And Doubleday gets a bad rap, but still we need somebody better than Doubleday to kind of manage this whole fluid situation. And so when Howard comes onto the field, yeah, he notes some concerns about trying to grab Oak Hill and trying to get somebody on the right flank of the first corps. But I don't even think Howard pays enough attention to what's going out in this immediate area of the seminary, and it's going to come back to bite him. And once again, I think it's the, the rip effect of Reynolds' death. Yeah, agree. Howard's now in overall command. Carl Schurz takes over command of the 11th yeah. Corps. Howard probably just gazes out to the west a little bit, but he's got to get back yeah. to Cemetery Hill yeah. because he's yeah. now in command of the field. So I think it's all of these individuals in different roles, and they start at the morning. Yeah, I agree. I, that's what I always yeah. say on tours. I mean, I use examples of that all the time, and this after morning into afternoon of July first is a perfect example of that. And, and I, I like your 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 thought, Eric, about you know what would have happened if they had just pulled back here to Seminary Ridge, and you see, and we're jumping a little bit ahead to the end of the day, but you have this open field mm-hmm. that the Confederates are gonna they're gonna have to take by a by a frontal assault and. You have a great artillery commander with a bunch of guns up here. Uh, if you had laid out the barricade line a little better and maybe not left that gap that Perrin eventually exploits, could you have held a lot? I mean, Perrin, yeah. I think, says that it, the only way that they took that line is because of this 50-yard gap. Yeah, well, and right. ask, ask Alfred Scales' <laughs> brigade how right. exactly. that artillery exactly. was. Exactly. And, and exactly. I think that's what you, when you look at that fight around McPherson's Ridge, artillery does not play a role. No. Mm. 
you never really hear about mm-hmm. them. If you have batteries that are more concerned with Confederate yep. batteries on Oak Hill right. than they are to the West. Right. So I think if you look at this, part of it, yes, Perrin finds the gap. Right. But also, to our north, all hell is broken yes. loose. Yes. That's yeah. why they yeah. have to get yeah. So it's that combination yeah. of the two. But right. if you had a stronger position, I think they could have held. I mean, they checked one Confederate brigade and badly damaged another in Perrin. Even though Perrin takes the position. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. They pay a high price. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. And I do a lot of, related to Pickett's Charge, I do a lot of programs related to the attack of Perrin and Scales and all of that. I've heard people com- compare that to sort of a micro Pickett's yeah. Charge on July 1st, but I don't know that I buy that. Because, again, you have this move around the gap, which you don't get on July 3rd. No, no and that's really, I think, Perrin on the fly yeah, get, right. making the call. Right, and, right. And, and we often talk about how poorly we have a lot of these guys in new positions. Mm-hmm. Abner Perrin is the opposite of that. Yeah. If there is anybody that's in a temporary position at Gettysburg that performs the best, you might be able to argue it's Abner Perrin. Yeah, I like Perrin. I'm a Perrin man. I like it, it, yeah. Yeah. it earns him a star. I know, yeah. as a show. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it get, but it gets the same sort of thing is going to get him killed a year later, leaving right. from the yeah, front. Right. And that's, exactly. Isn't that the story of Lee's army? No. You know, well, that's how you get promoted at Lee's exactly. army. Exactly, so. right, right. One way or the other. So. Yeah. Okay, so we've established we're not going to do a blow-by-blow of July 1st, the afternoon fighting the barricade. That would be a great episode at another time, even a field program. But, as we all know, Union forces are eventually driven to the south of us, to town. In this area, Seminary Ridge is now occupied by Confederate forces Mm -hmm. for the remainder of the battle. We drive by this Coupalon battlefield tours. We're right near Lee's headquarters, the Thompson House, which Robert E. Lee sets up as his headquarters later that afternoon. Again, in 1863, without the trees and the modern buildings, we would have had a clear view of that. Lee is right down the road from us. When I started coming here 20, 25 years ago, I used to hear people say stuff like, well, no doubt Lee used the cupola as an observation point. And folks, it would make sense. It's easily the highest Mm -hmm. point near his headquarters. But what's the historical provenance on that or lack of? So the one eyewitness account is from Corporal Levi Graham of the 149th Pennsylvania, who is a patient in this building, identified as a patient, and he he claims, in 1909 he writes this, he makes this claim, that on July 3rd he saw Lee up here. But that is the only person that says that they saw Lee. And I think it goes back, we talked about Buford's ailments. Yeah. How many people talk about the condition Lee is in, if you're dealing with cardiac issues and you're also suffering from dysentery, well, is Lee going to be able to climb you might, you up? Might always, too far I, from, you know. I've always said that, is that, you know, on July 2nd, we know Lee is in bad shape with the trots. And is he going to risk trying to climb four mm-hmm. flights of stairs and, and a ladder system to get up here and then have to race back downstairs? No, we do have accounts of him in Trimble. Out near the almshouse, right. you know, doing, doing, taking some observation out there. Yeah. So Lee might have the trots, but also too, he realizes the the magnitude of what's going on here. And you know, maybe he could have held it for a few minutes. Yeah. And I think could we be safe to say, if Lee wasn't up here, 
probably one of his staff officers. I, well, was. that's kind of. I think of, that there I mean, are, yeah. yeah. And I think that's kind of where over yeah. time do we get into this? Is it Lee or is it right. one of Lee's staff officers? Right. Or and is it, it Buford or one of Buford's staff right. officers? We also go back to something that we've been talk, talked about earlier in the episode, which is that the view from up here flattens the ground. So it's yeah. a great strategic view if you're trying to look out towards the South Mountain and count campfires. But if you're trying to get it down on a tactical right, level, exactly. you want to be down. And, you down know, from, from down here, we can see the water tower up here on Cemetery Hill. And with the trees down, you would have been able to see a not insignificant amount of the Cemetery Ridgeline. Yeah, and I agree. And to that point... You said something to me one time. I wasn't going to go here, but this just popped into <laughs> my head. You said something one time, like you have an opinion on where the Lee Longstreet July first yeah. evening meeting is here on the ridge. Since we're in the middle of a very special James Longstreet yes. series, Pete, what's your take yeah. on that? Well, I think on the on the evening, can we call you Old Pete? Old Pete, yeah, I'm an Old Pete now. <laughs> yeah. uh, can, can we call you Old Gloomy Pete? No, he's in a good mood today. Oh, yeah, but he could be gloomy sometimes. He's a little contemplative. I have before. the beard. Yeah. yeah. Well, the the July first, the the evening when they're riding down the ridge, they're they're going down probably somewhere around the McMillan farm, and and the next morning there's the there's the big meeting the next mm-hmm. morning, and I believe that that happens somewhere about where the chapel is today, okay, because uh, John Logan Black, First South Carolina Cavalry, comes up to Lee's headquarters and. And he says that some of the staff officers there point toward point to Lee and say he's over he's over there. And the way that it's written makes it seem like he's in easy eyesight and uh, and that it's happening somewhere, you know, past the Krauth house where the chapel is. And um, and again, like from that location, you can see what's going on. And it's also a fairly shielded position, yeah. too. I mean, you got this big building that's going to be in your way. Yep. Which, if you're getting a bunch of generals together, you want to be in a safe place. You don't want one stray artillery round from Cemetery Hill completely altering yeah. the history of, of this battle. Of the army. <laughs> Free man would have had to come out of the tree and take charge of yeah. the army. All right. Okay, old gloomy Pete. That was a good theory. All right. No, and I think that is, I think, one of the challenges we have when we look at this battle is it's very hard because we don't know exactly where some of these mm-hmm. meetings took place. We don't know what vantage point they had. And also, this terrain is much different with yeah. the development, with the trees. We, don't, we probably cannot get the view that Lee had on July 1st yeah. into July 2nd, so we really do have to kind of speculate a little bit where it is, but you would think they would be at the point where they could see the most, mm-hmm. and this is well, there. Well, and this is going to sound like a shameless plug, and it's not, but this is why people should come to the Seminary Ridge yeah. Museum, because you have the 1885 Tipton Panorama in high def, you know, as close to high def as we can get it, right, as, as panels within the museum, yeah. so you can come in and take a look and kind of judge for yourself what might this have looked and, like in 63? And on the fourth floor, we have them, you know, in a round room where you can press a button and it highlights what what road or what feature, what you're looking at. So very, yeah, and then you come up here and you can compare the two. All right, so as the Confederate sees the ridge, it's going to obviously be part of the Confederate high command uh, making some decisions here, but it's also going to be the continuation of a struggle for life and death for a number of soldiers that are still here on the ridge. And I think we cannot understate the importance of this as a hospital 
you know, how, what by all accounts, you know, hundreds of soldiers are being treated in and around this area. And I think we've got some great accounts from that as well. Yeah, there, there's going to be uh, the building, the two houses that are here, the uh, Schmucker House and the Krauth House, and then there's a big tent community that springs up again, by where the chapel is today, and then down the front slope of Seminary Ridge. In fact, if you look at the Brady photo from mid-July 1863, and you look under the trees in front of the building, you can see tents set up. So that is, and that's going to persist until September 16th of 1863, two and a half months, it's going to be a a hospital. And I think during that time, there's some pretty notable patients here and visitors. So maybe you can answer a question or two that I had when I was trying to read up for today. It seems that there was a, I think, a chaplain, mm-hmm. uh, Tinsley from maybe the 28th uh, Virginia, who wasn't very happy, I guess, with the atmosphere here after the battle. And I think he said there were she doctors, maybe referring to, what is that, Mary Walker? Mary Walker. Mary Walker was, was here in, in some evidence to suggest that she was here pretty quickly after the battle. And he, I think he also, and I'm using air quotes right now, um, talked about some distasteful Maryland ladies, not that they're ever distasteful, um, <laughs> coming up here. And my thought is he's talking about the women from Maryland coming to render aid. But mm-hmm. Yeah, Tinsley uh, is, is very down on, uh, on women coming to help and, and the, the impropriety that that, uh, that that entails of uh, women coming to help and, and doing uh, jobs that might be below their station to uh, a, a more aristocratic Virginian. Um, he also tells an interesting story about some women that come into the hospital and uh, to, to visit Isaac Trimble and uh, Robert Powell of the 5th Texas, and they want to go and see Henry Kidd Douglas. And the, the local Pennsylvania militia boy, essentially, won't let these women go and um, I think it's Powell pulls a knife and forces a knife point. So, yeah, Peter Tinsley tells a lot of interesting stories about what it's like in here, um, you know, sort of the day-to-day stuff. You know, we also have that account from 1913 of the reunion where I guess the son of the Confederate veteran stabs the guy in downtown mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Hotel in Gettysburg. We should do a special tour, Confederates and Pocket Knives, A History of Gettysburg. Because now we've got two Confederate knife-related stories here, folks. And no doubt more if oh, we, we scratch can find the more. surface. We start getting Bowie knives in. Now it's on. Well, wasn't it Faulkner who wrote, What Southern Boy Doesn't Love Having a Knife in His Pocket or something? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, actually, you know, that's what I was given when I was born. Or girl, yeah. that's right. Or Maryland girl. Yeah, that's right. But is Maryland a Southern state? Some of us feel that it is. They, see, that's part of my problem with Maryland. They yeah. insist on thinking they're part of the Confederacy. Yeah. They were not. It doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> Lincoln took away that right. I... Whoa. Oh, uh, throwing Whoa. heat. The new yeah. co-host throws heat on Lincoln. All right, All right everybody. I... This has been a great show. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. uh, this is the Battle of Gaysburg podcast. From uh, the cupola. From the cupola. Well, actually, do you want to be associated with this anymore? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, awkward silence notwithstanding, this has been great. Do we got anything left to cover? No, I think the best thing is there's a lot more to cover. Yeah. And once yeah, again, yeah. I, you know, I recommended a lot on tours to think the one area... And this is, and overall, this is a very well-interpreted battlefield. Mm-hmm. I think the one area where it's very deficient is July 1st. So if you really want to get, I think, a, a complete story, not only touring the, the fields west and north of Gettysburg, but come here. This is a wonderful museum to get a sense of what happens on the first day. 
and also the importance of this position for the rest of the battle. Well, and not coincidentally, I mean, the Seminary Ridge building and the museum is on the major auto tour yep. route here at Gettysburg. So whether people stop enough to interpret or contemplate what happened here, almost everybody who does the quote-unquote auto tour of the Battle of Gettysburg does come through here. So, Pete, you want to tell people, you know, what the hours are at the museum, when they could stop in? Do you possibly have any special promotional oh, offers? Well, I'm happy you asked, Jim. Thank you. So right now, Seminary Ridge Museum is open uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and you can come up to the cupola. It's a guided tour, and we run those tours six times a day, so you can come up and see the view that we have been basking in, and special for listeners, your super fans of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, we are offering a 20% discount on a cupola ticket includes museum admission, and all you have to do is say that you heard about this on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, and if you buy tickets online, all you have to do is put in the promo code B-O-G-P-O-D. Excellent. What was that promo code again? B-O-G-P-O-D. And do they get a deeper discount if they run their fingers through your beard and say, old gloomy Pete? Because I can tell you love that. <laughs> we shall see. All right. Depends. Dir- Director Pete, henceforth known as old gloomy Pete yes. at the Battle yes. of Gettysburg podcast. Speaking of t-shirts, again, the battleofgettysburgpodcast.com store is open for business. Check us out. We've got all your favorite t-shirts, merchandise, podcast theme, paraphernalia, all there. The Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.com, all one word. And before we go, one more time, uh, we do want to remind you about uh, our colleague and friend Tracy Bear's tour of Chambersburg coming up at the end of July here in 2021. I should note that because people do listen to I know, in the future, a different dates. So if you're yeah. listening in 2022, don't show don't up. Don't show up. But if you're in 2021, it is Saturday, July 31st, 2021 at 10 a.m. Superfan Jody has been kind of helping with some of the preparations for this tour. Might our listeners meet you at the tour if they show up? Absolutely, I will be there. And where will you be? You will be in Chambersburg with parking available in the Franklin County lot on Hood Street. Folks, it is $20 per person. Pay Tracy directly at the event. It will be about two and a half hours. Going to cover Chambersburg, John Brown, the Civil War era, Confederate occupation, the 1864 burning of Chambersburg. And for more information, please contact Tracy at TLB. AER61 at gmail.com or look for our event on face event page on Facebook. And I'll just say after two episodes with Tracy on Chambersburg and the Civil War, you're not going to want to miss this. Story. It, it was awesome. It is. You've there's got- so much material, things you've never considered, things that are going to impact what happens here. You don't want to miss this story. All part of our new Beyond Gettysburg series of on-the-field programs, which we hope to do someday here at the seminary sooner rather than later. Absolutely. We can get out of here. Hopefully this hatch opens. Yes, if the hatch doesn't open, we'll still be here. That's uh, right. Come see us. Yeah, come see us. Bring food. Permanent, permanent exhibit. Yeah. Please bring food, because we have no food here. So. Okay, Superfan Jody from Savage, Maryland. You've wrapped up your first full episode as a contributing correspondent to the team. Any closing thoughts? I guess my only thought for today is you really need to come out here and take advantage of the view. You can see the 
supposed Reynolds uh, death site and get a better perspective on the battle. Need to come out here. Yeah, and as we close out the recording here, it's approaching 7 o'clock p.m., uh, late June of 2021, very much presumably what it would have looked like in late June, early July of 1863, and just a spectacular view from the cupola. you got to come see Pete at the Seminary Ridge Museum and check it out. All right, well, this has, I think, been a great episode. Uh, that will be our special July 1st surprise for everybody. Uh, so we want to thank you all for listening. And as we said, please come out, support the Seminary Ridge Museum if you can. Stop by. It's well worth a visit. And happy anniversary, folks.